Now, in case you haven't heard, the pastor is going to sing with the choir on Christmas Eve. And if that is not enough to get you to come out for the Christmas Eve service, I'm not sure what is. Also, you'll, you'll get to see the, the very last of my Christmas ties. You notice I've worn a red tie every Sunday in December thus far. And so the, f- the final Christmas tie comes out for the Christmas Eve service. None of that has anything to do with what I'm about to say. So now I'm going to start the clock. What are you hoping Santa's going to bring you for Christmas this year? I'm sure you've got something in mind. What are you hoping Santa's going to bring? Have you made your list? Have you made sure to give your list, I mean, not just to Santa. I mean, you can, you can mail it off to the North Pole. But you know, it's far more important to make sure the list gets to one of Santa's little helpers. You know who Santa's helper is in your family, the one that makes sure Santa comes through every year? You, you know, I think, I think this is, for many people in our culture, this is the main difference in people's minds between Santa Claus and God, right? Santa takes requests, and Santa has little helpers that make sure that all those requests get fulfilled. The reality is, for most of us, we do approach God about the same way we approach Santa. We've got a list. We've got a list of things that we really want from him, things that we want him to do for us, things that we want him to give us. But unlike Santa's list, the things on our God list tend not to be able to be found in stores And they tend to be a lot more expensive. In fact, priceless. Things like good health or recovery from bad health. Things like relationships and the healing of broken relationships. Things like peace and forget peace on earth. How about just peace at home? How about just peace in my head? This morning, we come to the end of our study on Second Samuel, which has been a, a long look at the rise, the fall, and the return of Israel's greatest king, King David. This chapter that we're going to look at, this last chapter of Second Samuel, is the final word on, on David in, in this book of Samuel. It's really a, a summary of the significance of his reign. And, and what we're going to see is that the reign of King David is all about a gift from God To his people. What we're going to see is that through the king's sacrifice, through the king's sacrifice, God gives his people the gift that they need the most. And that's as true today as it was back then. And if you're looking for a a single sentence about about what our chapter is about, that's it. Through the king's sacrifice. God gives his people the gift that they need the most. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Samuel chapter 24. 2 Samuel 24. If you're using one of the Bibles we provided, that's found on page 514. 514. 2 Samuel 24. Uh, You'll, I think, find it helpful just to keep your Bible open uh, because I'm going to be referring back to this chapter again and again uh, throughout throughout the sermon. The, The chapter breaks down into three clear sections. For you note-takers, here's, here's the outline. First, the king's sin in verses 1 to 9. 
the king's sin, verses 1 to 9. Second, the king's faith, verses 10 to 17, the king's faith. And, and then third, the king's sacrifice, verses 18 to 25, the king's sacrifice. So as I began, as we get ready to read this, this chapter, it is almost Christmas. So I want you to keep in mind as we look at this chapter, what is it that you most want from God? What gift is it that you need the most? All right, first, the king's sin. Look there at chapter 24, verse 1. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over and may the eyes of my Lord the king see it. But why does my Lord the king want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders. So they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. After crossing the Jordan... They camped near Arur, south of the town in the gorge, and then went through Gad and on to Jazer. They went to Gilead and the region of Tatim, Hadshi, and on to Danjaan and around towards Sidon. Then they went toward the fortress of Tyre and all the towns of the Hivites and Canaanites, and finally they went on to Beersheba in the Negev of Judah. After they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days, and Joab reported the number of the fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were about 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword. And in Judah, 500,000. David's sin, the king's sin, is to count the fighting men. That's what the king's sin is. He counts the fighting men of Israel. But to say that is to immediately raise two questions. First, what's wrong with counting? And, and second, how could it be sin if God put him up to it in the first place? If God incited him to it, how can it be sin to count them? Well, let's deal with that second question first. The author goes out of his way to point out that behind David's decision to take a census of the fighting men of Israel is God. And God's decision, God's purpose to chastise, to, to discipline Israel. The same story is told in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, and, and there in the parallel, in 1 Chronicles 21, we, we get another link in the, in the causal chain. We're told that, that it's actually Satan who incites David, but, but that actually doesn't really change anything. It just lengthens the causal chain. At the end of the chain, we've still got God and God's purpose, God's decision. David... And his sin were the means to God's end. Now, we're not told when this happened. We're not even told why God is angry at Israel. Just that he had decided to discipline Israel, and he was going to use David and David's sin to accomplish his purpose. And right away, we all want to say, well, but shouldn't that get David off the hook? And the answer is no, not at all. As we'll see in a moment when we get to uh, verse 10, David understands that he sinned. 
as, as we saw there in, in verse 3, Joab clearly thinks that David's in sin. And when the prophet Gad shows up to give us the message from God about the whole matter, we'll see very clearly that God thinks David has sinned. And right up front, I mean, we're not even out of verse 1 yet, and we are in deep theology, but we are in deep theology that is actually very consistent throughout the entire Bible. On the one hand, God is absolutely sovereign. Nothing, nothing with a capital N, nothing including your sin happens outside of God's sovereign will. But on the other hand, and this is the entire message of Scripture, on the other hand, you are absolutely responsible for your sin. It's, it's not God's fault. It's not Satan's fault. It's not mom's fault. It's your fault. You're responsible. In, in other words, according, according to Scripture, in every human action, there are actually two wills at work. God's will and your will. And they're both working at the same time. Now, theologians have a big fancy word for this. They call this concurrence. Concurrence. It's just the truth that God sovereignly governs and determines the world of human action. And he does so through the free exercise of the human will. Notice I didn't say the human exercise of free will. I said the free exercise of human will. And if you're interested in the distinction, come find me at the door afterwards. I'm happy to explain it. But the, but the bottom line is, at the end of the day, we always do exactly what we want to do. Nobody makes us. Nobody forces us. We do what we want to do. And yet, at the same time, we always do what God has already determined would be done. There's the message of Scripture. And, and, and I don't need to belabor the point that at this moment we're feeling a lot of tension. There's a lot of tension in those two statements. And how does that work together? Well, what's really striking when you read through Scripture is the Bible's not really all that concerned to explain the tension away. It just keeps insisting on both points. God is absolutely in control. Nothing happens outside of his will. And you, you're responsible. Now, as, as Christians, what, what I want to suggest to you is at this point, our, our response should not be to be offended. And our response should not be to try to explain the tension away. No, our, our response should be to be comforted to be deeply encouraged because the reality is nothing is more distressing in this world than human sin, human evil. Nothing brings greater pain into our lives than the pain that is inflicted upon us by other people except the pain that we experience because of our own sin as we see it inflicted on other people. What passages like this teach us is that despite the apparent chaos and, and havoc of human iniquity, God is in control. Absolutely. 
His purposes are being accomplished. His plan is being worked out. We may not be able to see them, but there are limits to human sin. We may not understand them, but there are reasons that God has ordered your life and my life the way he has, including the sins that were committed against us and even including the sins we ourselves have committed. We may not know the reasons for all of it, but we know the God who does. He's proven his character. He's proven that we can trust him. He's done it time and time again in our lives, and he has done it ultimately at the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. So we can trust the God who is sovereign even over evil. Now, that's just verse one of this chapter. So for more on that whole topic, come back next week because Jeff Chang is gonna be in Romans chapter nine. So David's not off the hook, even though God's in total control. That's the answer to the second question. But, but what about that first question? Why, why is David's census a sin in the first place? What's wrong with counting? The text doesn't tell us explicitly. But by itself, we know that counting is not a sin. By itself, counting is not a sin. God actually commands a census twice in the book of Numbers. And in Exodus chapter 30, verse 12, he gives explicit regulations for how to conduct a census in his law. So we know that he imagines that he, he understands that there's going to be a census periodically in the life of Israel, and he tells you know, the people how to conduct it. So we know that the mere having of a census is not the problem. Really, all we have to go on in, in our chapter is Joab's objection there in verse 3. And it would seem from Joab's response that what Joab is concerned about is not the counting so much, but the, but the motives behind the counting. He, he asks, why why would you want to do such a thing? He's getting at David's motives there. I mean, why, why else pray that, that the Lord would, would increase the number of men in, in Israel and Judah and that David would, would see it but then object to the, to the actual counting of them? Joab senses that there is something wrong in David's heart. It would seem that rather than trust in God, David wanted to know just how strong he was. He wanted to quantify it. He wanted, you know, to, to, to measure it because as everybody knows, there's security in numbers. And yet at this point, how far David has fallen from 1 Samuel chapter 17 when he goes out against Goliath, absolutely outgunned and says, not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. That sentiment apparently is not behind his counting here in 2 Samuel 24. You know, I think pride and security in numbers, well, that's something that we Americans can relate to, isn't it? We're good with numbers. We're good at counting. We, well, we feel like we're in control, don't we? We, we feel like we're safe when we know how big our army is whether that army consists of dollar bills in the bank account or whether that army consists of people in the pews or the number of Facebook friends we have or Twitter followers, whether that army consists 
in the numbers of calories burned and hours exercised this week, when we can count it, well, then we are pretty confident that we're doing okay, that, that, that we must be secure, that, that we must be safe. If we can count it, we're in control. David's sin, I think, ultimately, is not merely counting. It, it's rather the, the pride, the, the, the desire to put his trust and confidence in something other than God, something that he could measure, something that he could control. And, and so I've just got to ask you this morning, what, what is your confidence in this morning? What, what's making you feel safe and secure this morning? Is it your, is it your apparent success that, that you're able to measure in some quantifiable way? Is it your, your relative goodness as you measure yourself against other people and you feel like, well, I'm better than them? What is your confidence in this morning? Henson, as a church, we need to ask ourselves this question. What is our confidence in? Is it in numbers of people in the pew? Are we as guilty of David's sin as David was? You see, what we need to understand as believers is that any confidence other than confidence in the faithfulness of God, confidence in his promises, something that we actually have no control over, something that at the end of the day we can't finally measure. Oh, but any confidence other than confidence in that, in that God and those promises, it's just pride. It's just idolatry. But the point of this chapter is not finally the king's sin. If, if it were, the author would have given us a lot more information about it. No, the, the point of this chapter is, is to lead us from the king's sin, I think, second to the king's faith. The king's faith. Look at, look at verse 10. David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, O Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad, the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come upon you three years of famine in your land, or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you? Or three days of plague in your land. Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into the hands of men. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated. And 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, enough, withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aranah, the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. 
these are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall upon me and my family. David's faith really has been the dominant note of, of, of David throughout the entire narrative of First and Second Samuel. Even when David's in the midst of sin, what comes forward again and again is David's faith. And so we're not surprised to see David's faith come to the fore again here at the very end. And I think David's faith displays itself in two ways in these verses. It believes something about himself. David's faith believes something about David. And David's faith believes something about God. First, David's faith acknowledges his own sin. David's faith leads him to confess and believe that he is a sinner. David is is conscience-stricken there in verse 10. But, but, But we need to understand faith does a lot more than just say, I'm a sinner, I'm sorry. No, no, faith actually takes the measure of sin. Faith takes responsibility for the true nature of sin. David actually piles up three different words here in verse 10 to describe his own sin and what he's done. First, he, he calls it sin, or what our Bible translates sin. That, that is a, a falling short of God's standard, a, a missing the mark of what he was created for. He, do, he doesn't minimize what he's done as a, as a mistake or, or maybe as a procedural error. Some people think that that's what's going on with the census, that David was supposed to do it one precise way and he, he, he kind of messed up the procedure and so now he's in trouble. No, no David doesn't try to write it off as simply a, a misunderstanding or a procedural error. No, he acknowledges he failed to live up to God's requirements. And that failure leads to the second word that he uses, guilt. Uh, we, we could translate that, that same word there in verse 10 as, as iniquity. I, I beg you, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant. You know, David's failed, but he hasn't just failed a test. And so, you know, study hard and, and try harder next time. Maybe you'll pass next time. Now, that's not the kind of failure that sin is. No, he's, he's failed to honor God. He's failed to uphold God as holy. It's it's a moral failure, a relational failure. And it leaves him blameworthy before God, guilty and deserving of God's punishment. And that guilt arises directly from, from the third word he uses right there at the very end. I have done a very foolish thing. To act foolishly is not to be silly. I mean, that's the way we use the word foolish. Somebody's being foolish. They're, they're, they're kind of being silly. No, no, that's not the idea in Scripture. The, the, this word, uh, uh, to act foolishly, it, it's, it's to act out of the perverseness of your own heart, to, to, to willfully reject God's way in order to go your own way. That's what it means to be a fool, to, to act foolishly. And friends, this is what sin is. This is what faith understands sin to be. It's it's not a mistake. It's not an an error. It's not a a slip-up. Sin is the willful rejection of God's standard that leaves us morally guilty before a holy God and deserving of his wrath. I'm going to say that again because that's not, not, it's not everything that could be said about sin, but it's a pretty decent definition. Sin is a willful rejection of God and his standard that leaves us morally guilty 
before a holy God and worthy of his wrath. And this is what faith understands. This is what faith grasps about itself. Faith does not make excuses. Faith faith doesn't blame others. Faith doesn't blame the environment. No, No, faith looks in the mirror and says, yep, that's me. Guilty as charged. That's who I am. But that's not all faith believes. Faith also believes something about God. And David shows it to us here. Faith believes that God is the one that we must run to for mercy in the face of our sin. Now, now David prayed for mercy there in, in, in verse 10. He asks that, that, his, that his guilt be taken away, that it be transferred to another. And so God sends Gad, the prophet Gad, with a message. It's not a message that, okay, David, now that you've said sorry, everything's going to be okay. No, David's going to be spared, but consequences will follow. As we saw, God is using David's sin to bring judgment on the nation of Israel. And David is given three choices. They're meant to be really equivalent punishments, though differing in duration and sharpness. It's like, do you want the Band-Aid pulled off slowly or do you want it ripped off quickly? That, that's, that's kind of what's going on here. You get three years of famine in which people will die, but slowly. You get three months of military defeat. People are going to die a little more quickly. Or three days of plague. And people are quickly going to drop like flies. It's in David's choice that I think we see his faith in God as the God of mercy. Because even in judgment, he says, he would rather fall into the hands of God than into the hands of men. Because what does he say about God there in verse 14? For his mercy is great. Faith does not reimagine God as a a God who does not judge. Right? Faith, Faith does not say, well, God must just be love and there's never any consequences. No, faith actually understands that that God judges and it turns to that very God for mercy. It knows that it must turn to God rather than away from God. Faith actually takes God's side against itself and then entrusts itself to God. Because faith knows that if the God who judges will not show mercy, then there is no other refuge to be found. Nothing else will do. And yet that same faith is confident that God will show mercy to those who turn to him. I mean, in many ways, I think we, those of us who are parents, we, we understand this. We understand this dynamic. There is a huge difference between my response to my kids when they're caught doing something wrong And my response to my kids when they come on their own and confess the same wrong without having been caught. Now, now consequences are probably going to flow in both cases. But there is mercy. There is mercy when the child comes and I didn't even know about it. And they confess the wrong that they did. Oh, if, if, if even we as parents get that. 
How much more God? How much more God? Now, if you're, if you're not a Christian, I think this is what you need to understand about faith. Faith is not just a blind leap in the dark. It's, it's, it's not wishful thinking. No, it is a profound conviction, a profound conviction of your own guilt in the face of God's holiness and an equally profound conviction of God's sheer mercy in the face of your sin. This is what faith is. There's there's nothing that you can do to to demand or, or earn that mercy, and yet faith knows that all you can do is humbly cast yourself upon it where there is nowhere else to go. And this is exactly what David does, and he does it by faith, and his faith is not disappointed. Luther was fond of pointing out that the alien work of God was judgment, but the proper work of God was mercy. And that's what we see here. There in in verses uh, 15 and and 16, as the plague is about to strike Jerusalem, David prays that that God would allow the judgment to fall on him and his family instead of the sheep. And God hears that prayer. And he does what God delights to do. He shows mercy to those who depend upon him. I don't know what you think about God. I don't know if you think of God as just all love and light or if you think of God as just mean and angry and waiting to slap you. But both of those views are wrong. The reality is this is God, a holy God who will and must judge sin, but also a God who delights in showing mercy to those who stop hiding their sin. And instead, come to him and confess it and turn to him. This is who God is. Now, immediately, this raises the question, how can God do this? How can God show mercy when justice demands judgment? How, in fact, can God be God? How can he satisfy the demands of justice? Which, let's, let's, let's be clear, none of us want God to throw away. We, we want to live in a world in, in, in which justice is done, if for no other reason, because we've experienced injustice and we'd like it to be set right. So so how is it that God can be just and satisfy the demands of justice and yet show mercy at the same time? That leads us, third, to the king's sacrifice, the end of the chapter. Look at verse 18. On that day, the, the, the day that David prayed, on that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aranah, the Jebusite. So David went up, as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Aranah looked and saw the king and his men coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Aranah said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Aranah said to David, Let my lord the king take whatever pleases him and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. O king, Aranah gives all this to the king. Aranah also said to him, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Aranah, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. 
David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered prayer in behalf of the land, and the plague on Israel was stopped. These verses, beginning in verse 18, are are both a, a flashback and a foreshadowing. They're a flashback in that they explain just why it was that God said there in verse, verse 16, enough, and, and stopped the plague just as it was about to hit Jerusalem. But, but they're also a foreshadowing. They, they reveal the purpose, really the future purpose of this entire episode. David's prayer in verse 17 is a priestly prayer. It stands in stark contrast to the prayer he prayed in verse 10. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with the prayer in verse 10. It's just this is a very different prayer. Back in verse 10, he asked that his guilt, his guilt be taken away, that it, that it be transferred to another. But here in verse 17, he asks that the punishment fall on him and his family. That's a priestly prayer. That's the role of the priest to stand in the stead of the people, between the people and God, and to offer sacrifice for them. In response to David's prayer, God sends Gad, this time with a very different message. He's told to buy the threshing floor of Aranah, to, to build an altar there, and to offer sacrifices so that the plague may stop. The location is fraught with significance. Second Chronicles tells us that the threshing floor of Aranah stood on Mount Moriah, the place where Abraham had sacrificed Isaac, and God at the last minute intervened and provided a substitute for Abraham's son. We also know that it would be here on the threshing floor of Aranah that, that later Solomon, under David's instruction, would build the temple, the place where the annual sacrifice would be offered to atone for the people's sin. Aaron offers to give it all to him. But David insists on paying for it. He will not offer a sacrifice that cost him nothing. That, that idea is central to the, to the notion of sacrifice. The, the significance of the cost isn't that like God is, is more pleased with expensive gifts and, and you know, isn't as impressed with, with less expensive sacrifices. No, no, no the point is that the, that the cost represents David's interest in the sacrifice. David has skin in the game. It represents him. And as we read in response to the sacrifice, in response to the shedding of blood, God hears David's prayer, and he has mercy on the land. Really here, this this last verse of of chapter 24 uh, helps us know that, that, that the appendix of of 2 Samuel, which is chapters 21 to 24, were very carefully constructed because this is the way that the, uh, uh, the, the scene with the Gibeonites ends back in chapter 21. Atonement is made. And chapter 21, verse 14, and after that, God answered prayer in behalf of the land. Now here at the very end of this section, the king is once again offering atonement, making atonement for the people, and his prayer is heard on behalf of the land. This is what the king does. 
The king is not just a king. The king, it turns out, is also a priest who prays for his people, who offers sacrifices for them, who stands as a mediator between them and their God and makes atonement for them. And it's here at the end of 2 Samuel that we see really the significance of David's reign. This king and his reign is a gift from God to his people that this king might make atonement for the nation. And it is here at this point that we most clearly see Jesus Christ. When David asked that God's hand fall upon him and his family instead of the people who were, who were but sheep, what, what we hear there, of course, is, is David's heart. David is a good shepherd. He's not just a tyrannical ancient Near Eastern king. No, he's a good shepherd. The reality is God had every intention of answering David's prayer, of making atonement for his people through the sacrifice of the king, but it would not finally be through David or Solomon, or actually any of the Davidic kings that followed. In fact, the throne would eventually fall vacant, and the prayer remain unanswered. Until about 2,000 years ago, one night, when angels announced to a group of shepherds taking care of sheep, how appropriate that a baby had been born in the town of David, who was to be called Christ, the Messiah, the the promised king, the Lord. Finally, the promise of 2 Samuel 7, the promised son had come, the, the king who would sit on David's throne forever. But friends, first, that king had a prayer to pray and a sacrifice to offer. The prayer he would pray there in the Garden of Gethsemane was not my will be done, but yours, O Lord. And it was in reference to the sacrifice that he had to offer. Not not oxen, but his own body, his own blood shed on the cross. There bearing the wrath of God for his people's sin, representing themselves in his own person. Friends, this is why there had to be a Christmas. For God must first take on our flesh if he would take on our sin. And the point of Christmas is Good Friday. And the sacrifice of the king for his people, a sacrifice offered just outside Jerusalem, near the very spot where Abraham, where David had offered their own sacrifices. Friends, here's the love of God at Christmas, a love for sinners. For when it came time to offer a sacrifice, God would not offer one that cost him nothing. He spared Abraham's son. He spared David. But he did not spare his own son. The most costly sacrifice the universe has ever seen Willingly paid by God to rescue who? You and me. People who deserve not to be rescued, but to be destroyed by that plague. A 
Well, friends, this is the love of God. And here's the ultimate purpose of 2 Samuel 24, really the ultimate purpose of David's reign, his, his rise, his fall, his return, that David would pray this priestly prayer and that God would answer it in the person of his son. This is why Jesus came. This is why he was born. He was born to fulfill this promise, to answer this prayer, to bring an end to the plague of human sin, to finally sheathe the sword of God's anger. This is why Jesus was born. This is what Christmas is about. This is why we celebrate that he was willing to pay the most costly of sacrifices, the the humiliation of the incarnation, the, the pain of the cross, so that we might receive the gift that we need the most, the removal of our guilt peace with God. Or the angels couldn't have said it better. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. It's the Sunday before Christmas. Does God's favor rest on you? You know, this is the gift from God that you need. Have you asked him for it? Have you requested this gift through his son? Because you know it's true. God doesn't take requests except for this one. And this one he has promised always to hear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would have faith to see ourselves and to see you as we ought, that we would see ourselves clearly in our need, and that we would see you clearly in your mercy. Father, we pray that pride would not keep us from asking for the forgiveness that we need. We know that your love will not prevent you from giving it to us. That has guaranteed it to us in Christ. Lord, may we receive you this Christmas. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.